glad you guys are here tonight. We're just going to jump right in. Um, the conversation time of our gathering tonight will kind of help us to kick off the rest of the, the experience we have um, for the gathering tonight. Tim Keller moved to Manhattan to start a church before it was cool to go and live in the city. And for about 20 years now, he's been in conversations with seekers and skeptics about God. And his book, The Reason for Faith, is kind of the inspiration for the series of conversations that we're in right now called Making Sense of Faith. And he says there's one question that he's heard far more often from New Yorkers than the question, does God exist? And that question is, why did Jesus have to die? In the gospel accounts, Jesus was so revolutionary among the religious and the political leaders of the day that they conspired to kill him for blasphemy uh, against God and treason against the emperor. And as a result, Jesus is crucified on a wooden cross outside of Jerusalem, the standard Roman uh, form of torture for non-Roman people. Basically, it's being put up on a big piece of wood until you suffocate to death. Early Christians believed that something happened in the death of Jesus, that God in the death of Jesus on the cross forgave the sins of humanity. Thus the reason for the popularity of the question, why did Jesus have to die? Or in other forms, uh, why couldn't Jesus and why couldn't God just forgive us? Why couldn't God just accept everyone or at least those who are sorry for their sins? Uh, the Christian God sounds like a vengeful God of primitive times who needed to be appeased by human sacrifice. Why did Jesus have to die? It's a pretty important question, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, because in some ways the way we answer it is a reflection of what we decide to do with Jesus. And it may even be the difference between whether or not we decide to follow Jesus or not. And there are several different ways that people answer this question, and I want to highlight just two briefly. One answer to the question, why did Jesus die, is that he didn't have to die. After all, what kind of God would need to kill his son to appease his anger? How, how is it fair that an innocent man could die so that God wouldn't have to smite the world? God might not punish humanity, but he ends up taking up out his wrath on somebody else, doesn't he? It seems kind of immature. Uh, it seems convenient for God since he's not the one getting hurt. To some, the cross seems like divine child abuse of the worst kind. And so this kind of answer is a way of rejecting the necessity of the cross altogether. To be honest, if that's what the cross is, I don't want it either. I don't want to have anything to do with it. If that's what happens at the cross, I want to reject the cross too. But what if this answer isn't true? What if there's a way for Jesus to have died without it being divine child abuse? What if Jesus died in a way that deeply involved and affected God? What if there was more than just the wrath of an immature, whimsical God at the cross? Another answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die, is that he died as an example to humanity. Jesus had to die because it was the perfect example of sacrificial love that there ever could be. 
Jesus needed to die to show solidarity with the poor and the oppressed who lived beneath the thumb of the powerful. Jesus was the example par excellence of, of nonviolent resistance as a response to social injustice. Gandhi is a well-known adherent to this viewpoint. He says in his autobiography, I could accept Jesus as a martyr and the embodiment of a sacrifice and a divine teacher. His death on the cross was a great example to the world. But that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. I personally think there's a lot of merit in this answer. Jesus was indeed a perfect example of sacrificial love and nonviolent resistance to injustice. And certainly this is a lot of the significance of the cross. But what if there's more to the cross than just what that answer gives? What if there is, in fact, something mysterious and miraculous about it in the words of Gandhi? What if it's more than just an example, an awesome example, even it is, even that it is? What if something happened at the cross? The house churches in first century Rome were struggling to answer this question too, particularly related to the relationship between Jews and non-Jews in Roman churches. Jewish Christians were kicked out of Rome in the early 50s, not the 1950s, by an edict of the emperor Claudius. And when he died, Claudius died, the edict expired, and they returned to Rome to find the church was led by a bunch of non-Jewish people. Go figure, all the Jews were kicked out. The only problem was that Gentiles didn't follow Jesus the way that Jews followed Jesus. They didn't practice male circumcision or observe Sabbath or keep laws uh, for food as the Jewish law commanded. And so there's this big conflict that stirred up in Rome about a question like, do non-Jews who follow Jesus have to follow the law to stay in the grace of God? The Jewish Christians answered yes. The Gentile Christians answered no. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter, Romans, to deal with some of this controversy. And for the most part, he sides with Gentile Christians, though the Gentile Christians aren't without blame for other things. Paul reasons in Romans that the Jews are answering wrongly this Jew-Gentile question because they're failing to understand the significance of Jesus' death. In other words, they don't have a good answer to the question Why did Jesus have to die? And so in the context of this debate, Paul offers his own answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die? The best distillation of this answer is found in a text in Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. And if you want to turn there, it's in your Bible, it's in your seat on page 770. We'll look at it in just a minute. Of course, it's obviously up here too. It might be harder to read. Up here, however. As a quick side note, um, Paul's answer to this question, why did Jesus have to die in this text, isn't the only answer that he gives to this question, nor is it the only answer the New Testament gives. It's one among several legitimate answers the Bible gives. And let, let me say again, I think Paul gives a very important answer to this question that we'll get to. We shouldn't neglect it. It might even be a more important question, a more important answer than other answers that are out there, but it's not the only one. It's not the only legit one. I only say that because there are lots of people who would take this one answer and just say that it's the only one. 
Um, in fact, we'll deal with another answer for this question when we get to the conversation about making sense of the resurrection. So there's a little teaser for you. Well, let's, let's read this text um, together. And we're, we're going to kind of read this verse by verse and just do some commentary style through it because this is, one, this is the thickest text that we've been through together as a community in terms of the distance culturally that it has from us. And so we're just going to read through it um, verse by verse and kind of talk about it in snippets. Romans 3, verse 21. And we'll, we'll read 21 and the first part of 22. But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So Paul says that righteousness, this word right here, if we translate this word, it really it just means right with God. Righteousness comes apart from the law. And in this context, Paul's referring to works of the law, which are circumcision, Sabbath, food laws, things that would distinguish Jews culturally from other people. And he's saying you don't have to have works of the law to be right with God. Um, Right relationship with God comes through faith, or trust in Jesus Christ. Um, To all who believe, I think that's significant. Given the context of this, Paul's saying all because it's not just for Jews. It's for non-Jews as well. Let's look at the second half of 22 going forward. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Paul's assumption is that every single member of humanity, every people group, every race, every ethnicity, every single person is broken. And this is an important assumption. All have sinned because if all have sinned, if all are broken, if all fall short of the glory of God, then everyone needs to be fixed. If everything is broken, then everything needs to be fixed. And Paul says that this universal fix is available, again, through Jesus. And he says that it's available, the way that he says it's available is, is through two words. The first is justified. Those who trust in Jesus are justified. Justified is a derivative of this word, righteousness. So, just think, read right with God. The second word is redemption. Now, this word redemption, Nathan Pope, you're going to love this word because this is an economic word. This is a word that means purchase. To redeem something is to, is to buy it. It's to purchase it. Think about, think about in terms of slavery. If we are slaves to sin, and we're slaves to the sin, the master slave driver of sin, then God is 
buying us out of slavery. He's paying the master of sin, and he's, he's buying us out. So we're redeemed. Now, embedded in this word redemption, redemption, whoa. I knew Claudia was going to bust me on that later if I didn't change it. Uh, embedded in this word redemption is the idea that a price has to be paid. To be free, a price has to be paid for brokenness. A price has to be paid to someone. Now, continuing on, the first half of verse 25 tells us how God went about fixing our brokenness. We see here how Paul is setting up the problem that, gets, that helps him get to the answer of why did Jesus have to die. Now he's going to talk about how God went about fixing our brokenness exactly. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Jesus' death was a sacrifice of atonement. Okay, this is where it starts to get really foreign to us. This word, behind this phrase is one word, and it's a very technical word that refers to um, the sacrificial system of Israel and to the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant, which you can see in a picture there. The Ark, uh, the, the, the cover of the Ark, you see those two angels at the top. Right at the base of their feet is the cover, the atonement cover of the Ark. Okay? So this, word, this phrase, sacrifice of atonement, the word behind it literally means atonement cover. Does that make sense? Now, the ark was a symbol of Israel's relationship to God. It had the Ten Commandments inside of it. It had other reminders of the covenant. And it was placed in a, in a very holy, sacred place because the Israelites thought that right at the top of that, where those angels had their wings out, that that was the very throne of God and that the atonement cover was the very footstool of God where, where God would put his feet and appear and be present in a very manifest way. So much so that if you touched it, you would die because God is so holy that he'll melt your face off like in Indiana Jones, right? So, so once a year... The high priest would go into the most holy place where the ark was. And sorry for the guy that looks like he's a chef in the most holy place there. But they, they believed that, that God would, would hover. He would appear in a cloud over the ark. And the high priest would, would sprinkle the blood of a goat and a bull that he had sacrificed to God on that atonement cover. And what would ha the, the atonement cover is also called the mercy seat of the ark. The idea was that the lifeblood of the goat and the bull, the bull were substituted for the lives of the Israelites. This action cleansed God's people of their sins and allowed them to live in right relationship with God. And it's a foreign idea to us. If you want to read more about it, you can see Leviticus 16, which is on page 79. You might want to write that down if you're curious. So basically, Paul is saying that Jesus is like the atonement cover on the ark. He is the means by which we receive forgiveness from God for our brokenness. Now, what, what in the world does that mean, or how does that happen? I think this metaphor of sacrifice of atonement, it has two senses. Um, 
The, the Hebrew word for atonement cover literally means to wipe away. So through the death of Jesus, humanity's sins are wiped away. The second sin, or the second sense is appeasement. That there is some wrath to appease. God is angry. God, God is he's fed up with humanity, and he's going to punish us if his wrath is not appeased. Paul goes on to say, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He kind of he mixes the metaphor here because here he says that Jesus is not only the sacrifice of atonement, he's not only the the atonement cover. He's also the sacrifice. So it's like Jesus' own blood is being sprinkled on the atonement cover in ancient Israelite imagery. It's through the shedding of his blood that we're made right with God. Jesus receives the wrath of God that we deserve at the cross. He's like the goat or the bull in the ancient Israelite sacrificial system. Now, I realize this mixes the metaphors. In this text, Jesus is the sacrifice itself. So he's the blood that's being sprinkled on the atonement cover, which is him too. And if you want to get really crazy, throw some Hebrews in there where Jesus is the high priest. And so now Jesus is the high priest that sprinkles the blood, which is his, onto the atonement cover, which is him. And whoa, that'll blow your mind, you know. Sorry, I'm just overwhelmed here. I think that says a couple of things. Number one, what happens at the cross is, in fact, pretty mysterious. And there's, there's more going on here that we could ever comprehend. But number two, I think by this mixed imagery and mixed metaphor, we see that Jesus is thoroughly and completely the sacrifice for the brokenness of humanity. He is everything that makes us right with God. He's not only the atonement cover, he's also the sacrifice and the high priest. Second half of verse 25 and 26 Reveal the, the answer to the question, finally. Why did Jesus have to die? Finally, Paul gets to it. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So God, God sent Jesus. Jesus had to die because God had to demonstrate his justice in two ways. First, he had to be fair. All of us have a sense of fairness. There was, there was a price to be paid for brokenness, and God had to be fair. He had to punish brokenness. He had to punish sin or it couldn't be true to himself. Second, he had to be gracious. He had to show mercy. There had to be a way for humanity to continue to be in relationship with God, to be the one who's just and who justifies. Jesus had to die on the cross so that God could be both fair and gracious in his dealings. Jesus died so that we wouldn't have to die, so that we could be forgiven. He was our substitute. And maybe you're thinking, this is just a little too much to swallow. God is mad? 
and he has to appease his wrath to be fair to us? Really? Really? He takes it out on Jesus and not on us? He can't just get over it and, and forgive us and be cool with it? I mean, come on, God. I think to ask, ask such questions of God is to misunderstand the nature of forgiveness. One day, I decided to throw my brother on top of my family's antique oak table, and it split in two. And before grounding us for the rest of our lives, we're still grounded to this day, my dad had the opportunity to ask one of his favorite rhetorical questions. Who's going to pay for this? Who's going to pay for this? Which the implied response is, you are, Dad. You don't say that uh, because you'll be grounded beyond the rest of your life. (laughs) It's easy to see that when a table breaks, that there is going to be a price that has to be paid to fix it. You have to buy new materials. You have to uh, pay for labor to fix that table. Something has to happen. Something has to pay to fix that table, whether it was me or my dad. Now, forgiveness would mean my dad fixing it and paying to fix it so that his boys who were joking around and broke the table didn't have to pay for it, which is what he graciously did. And he's never let me forget about it. But it's no different in relationships. When we hurt each other, when we hurt God, when we hurt the world, we do damage. We might damage someone emotionally, for instance. Though it's harder to quantify and measure, it's still damage. And someone has to pay for it. And a lot of times it's the person who was emotionally damaged that has to pay for the healing. It might be years and years of counseling, but they're, they're paying for the damage that was done to them. Forgiveness means that the person who is hurt pays for it. And that the person who did the damage so, they, so that they don't have to pay for it. You, you see, forgiveness always, always costs something. And someone always has to sacrifice to pay for it one way or another. That is exactly what happened on the cross. We've done real damage with our brokenness toward God and against others, and somebody has got to pay for it if it is to be repaired. So at the cross, Jesus pays for it so that we don't have to. And that Jesus pays for our sin doesn't mean that God is a divine child abuser. God is not requiring human sacrifice for his child for the sake of demonstrating his justice and mercy. He's not an unaffected third party that takes out his punishment on some kid. No, by virtue of Jesus' resurrection, early Christians and we have come to believe that Jesus was God. That Jesus is the very face of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. So if Jesus is God in the flesh, it's not just God's Son who is substituting himself for us. It is God himself who is substituting himself for us. At the cross, God, through Jesus, takes on our brokenness in himself and pays for it so that we can be forgiven. When I lived in Memphis, I met a young Chinese guy named Li Jinghu, Carl for short, was his American name, I'm Li Jinghu, you can call me Carl, thank you for having the name Carl, (laughs) 
He was new to the United States. He's going to school for pharmacology or chemistry. Now he has a Ph.D. in medicinal chemistry, I guess. Um, one evening, he, too smart for me, he walked into the building of the church I was a part of, and he was searching for God. Somehow I got connected to him. We started hanging out. And I remember early in our relationship, he would say, I just want to know the God. Tell me what the God is like. You know, he just moved from, so he had articles in front of all of, you know, his proper names, I guess. Carl had never been exposed to God or spirituality of any kind, except for atheism, perhaps. In all of his years growing up, 20-something years, he was in China. So we started having weekly conversations about God and about the story of God that's found in the Bible. And one Sunday, Carl came with me to a worship gathering. And my mentor at the time, Chris Altrock, was giving a lesson on the significance of the cross. And at the end of the lesson, he invited anyone to come forward who wanted to nail a sin that they had written on a piece of paper to a cross that was placed up at the front on a stage. Chris encouraged no one to leave that day if they were carrying a burden of sin. And so I remember, even now, the sound of those hammers nailing uh, those nails into the cross. Ryan, were you there? You remember it too. It was, it was deeply moving. It was a powerful experience. I even went forward and nailed my own little piece of paper into the cross. When I came back to my seat, Carl hadn't moved. He was still there. After the gathering, I was talking to someone... And Carl came up to me and said, wait a minute before you leave. I have something I want to talk to you about. Carl went up to the stage and he wrote on a piece of paper and he nailed it to the cross. And he came back to me and told me that he had written his name on that piece of paper. And he told me that he had understood, perhaps for the first time, that he had brokenness in his life. Carl was deeply moved, and I I journaled the words that he said next to me because I don't ever want to forget them. Whatever it is of my sin that puts Jesus on the cross, I don't want to do it ever again. What if it's true? What if it's true that your brokenness and mine Help to put Jesus on the cross? What if it's true that something actually happened at the cross? What if it's true that Jesus was the fullness of God? What if it's true that at the cross God wiped away our sin through the death of Jesus? What if it's true that Jesus substituted himself for us so that we wouldn't have to pay the price for our sins? If it's true then at least it means this one thing. God must love us way too much to let our brokenness stand in the way of relationship with Him. Each of you, each of you is worth so much, too much, for wrath and anger to have the last word in your life. It doesn't matter what you've done, It doesn't matter where you've come from, every act of betrayal, every slanderous word, every demonstration of pride, every ounce of hatred, 
every feeling of shame, every secret sin, every embarrassing moment, every regretful word, every rebellious action. God absorbs it all through Jesus at the cross for us. And he says, I love you. I love you this much. If it's true, how will you respond? Paul says that this gift of grace and relationship with God comes by having faith or trust in Jesus. What will it look like for you to put your faith in Jesus? What will it take for you to trust Jesus for the brokenness in your life? 